0: All right. Well, we're going to transition now into a time of uh, studying of God's Word. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to finish up Matthew 5 today. Really, we're just bringing this to a close, to a a head here. Uh, You know, we're in the third part of the you-have-heard section of his sermon, uh, where Jesus is, is, is telling the crowd, telling the people on that Mount of Beatitudes, listen, these are the things that your religious leaders have been telling you, uh, but let me tell you what uh, really is the truth behind, behind this. Remember, this entire sermon, I want to go back to the beginning, is about entering the kingdom of God. We were told that Jesus was, was traveling and preaching about the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And so he started at the very basic, the beginning. You have to be spiritually bankrupt. You, you bring nothing to the table, and you need complete, utter righteousness. And so we looked at where true righteousness comes from. And so he stripped all those things away, and he's been building on those things along the way, culminating into— now. You have been taught these things, and let me just correct that. I haven't come to change the law. I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. God had a purpose in the law, and so he has sort of been correcting what they have uh, learned, the, the mispractice of these various things. And we've, we've seen how he talked about uh, murder and how hatred in the heart is, is equal to committing murder. Ad- adultery, how lust in the heart is equal to committing adultery. And so here we're going to look at the last sort of three sections here. He's going to talk about swearing. Uh, Swearing, not in the sort of uh, maybe cursing, uh, but swearing as an oath-taking, making rash vows, or being true to your word, being people of integrity. He's going to also uh, speak about the famous eye eye, uh, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth section, which really has to do about uh, taking revenge. And then finally, Praying, and loving, praying for and loving your, your enemies. So we're going to look at all three of those sections today. We have a lot to get through. So let me just begin by reading the passage. We're in Matthew 5. We're looking at verses 33 to 48. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also." If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and, and, from, him who wants to, uh, sorry, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward have you do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet your brethren only what do you do more than others do not even the tax collectors do so therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity, once again, to be in your holy word. And Lord, we recognize, uh, Lord, that we we need uh, illumination. We need the truth here, and we need the spirit to um, reveal truth to us. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us now as we begin to study your word. Lord, we want to discover what was at the heart of Jesus' message. He has much to say and much that is really uh, particularly applicable to our lives now and today, and I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, even now begin to prepare our hearts for the truth that you want us to see and to 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 learn and, and ultimately to apply, because I know, Lord, you want us to live as these bright lights that shine in the darkness of this world. So, Lord, just bless us uh, with the truth of your word today for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right into the the, the first point here is swearing. He's going to be looking at uh, the swearing, and he begins here with verse 33, saying, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. And the idea here at uh, Jesus is, is really basing this off a, a composite of ideas based off several Old Testament passages. I'll show you the main one, and then we'll look at another one f- further on. But Leviticus 19, verse 12. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So no, don't don't swear falsely. Don't make a, a, a false oath. Uh, the other one we'll look at further on is in Numbers uh, chapter uh, 30. It has to do with being bound to the promise that you make, being bound to your oath. And the point is to, to, to not break your words. So so don't make a false um, oath and don't break your oath. And the third one comes from Deuteronomy 23, and also the idea there is that if you make a vow to the Lord, then don't delay. Act on it. So don't delay either. And so those are composite ideas that are kind of packed into this, and we'll look at a few of these. But what Jesus says here in verse 33, he mentions uh, swearing falsely, and he mentions oaths. And these are two separate, but they're related Greek words. The first word, swear falsely, is epi oracheo, and it means to really, our word today, to commit perjury. So if you were in a court and you were to, you know, tell the truth and nothing but the truth, but you didn't tell the truth, you were committing perjury. You would swear falsely. The other word, the oath there, is an interesting word. It has to do with enclosing, literally fencing in or binding something together, and these two words he's using together here. But what we have to look at is what's the principle behind that the the mosaic law in the old testament well there's a new testament verse that really helps us out with it it's hebrews chapter 6 verse 16 kind of sums up the idea it says this for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute this is the idea in the old testament uh, there that when someone invoked the name of someone greater than themselves Maybe you've heard people do that. Oh, I, I swear on my mother's grave, <laughs> right? right? When they, when they swear uh, upon somebody greater than themselves, they are, they are lending greater credibility to the words that they have just uttered, right? Th- those words mean something more because I've just made this, uh, this oath. Now, the truth of this is this does exist in the Old Testament. It does. There's just example after example. You read through the Old Testament, you probably pass by it and don't even realize it. But let me just show you one from Abraham in Genesis 24, verses 2 to 3. Very interesting. He says, So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. That's kind of weird. All right. And I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So remember, he sent his servant to go find him a wife for a son. He, ha- he made him swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, to do that. And you find out later that Isaac makes a very similar oath to the God of heaven in Genesis 26. Also, Jacob and Laban ask God to be the witness of their covenant that they make in Genesis 31. And David and Jonathan, maybe they were, they were best friends, right? They had a really close relationship. Uh, they make a similar vow in 1 Samuel 20:16. 16. And when we read these passages, we find out that there were these solemn times, special moments where, where a vow was, was made. We're told that, that David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of, of Jacob. And there's many, many oaths in the Old uh, Testament where God was called upon as a witness to their, their sincerity and their, their commitment to their words. And probably the greatest example is God himself. God swore by himself. And we see that in scripture. In Genesis 22, 16, you might remember Abraham, uh, was to, to offer his son, his only son, Isaac, right, as a sacrifice on the altar, but God uh, prevented him. Once he got up to the point of bringing them that knife down, he stopped him, and this is what God says in Genesis twenty two sixteen. He said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. So God stopped him and then used that opportunity to, uh, further his promise to Abraham. Remember, the promise was that the son, Isaac, was the son of promise. That through Isaac, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. And Hebrews tells us that that God making that promise to Abraham, he swore by himself because he could swear by no one greater than himself. There's There's no one above God, right? So he swore by himself. But this brings up the question, why did God swear at all? Why did he need to do that? Does that mean that sometimes his word is unreliable? Sometimes his, his word is, is questionable. Is it only when he swears by himself that we should listen to his word? No, not at all. Um, God made uh, similar vows throughout Scripture, but only on a handful of occasions. This was one such occasion because it was to stress something very, very important. The promise made to Abraham, if Isaac were to die, would sort of do away with that promise. So he, instead he came back and said, no, no. I'm fulfilling that promise. I swear by myself. You know, Jesus did a similar thing. You might remember when we went through the Gospel of John. Over and over again, I pointed out those words, verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you. Jesus said that all through the Gospel of John. Why did he say, truly, truly, I say to you? Were those the words that you really needed to pay attention to, and it didn't really matter what else that he said, only when he said, truly, truly? No, again, he was highlighting those things. Those were very important things that he wanted to make sure that you didn't miss. Everything he said was was true, it was credible, but those things he was emphasizing for a particular a reason. And that's what we see God doing in the Old Testament. And even Jesus was, was compelled to swell, swear under oath by Caiaphas, the high priest. Remember when he was sort of on trial and Caiaphas put him under oath and said, I I put you under oath of the living God to testify if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus simply says, it is as you said. So we see that in the Bible, there is this oath-taking type of thing taking place. God himself does it. Jesus does it. Many godly men in the Bible do it. So God provided for it. And the reason he provided for such a thing is because he knows man's sinful nature. We are prone (laughs) to lie and deceive. We're just we're just prone to do that. We're prone to be, um, to not be forthright. And today, uh, some people believe that because of what Jesus teaches here, there's never a time to make any kind of oath or vow before God. That that's what he's saying. That needs to be done away with. But I'm going to tell you that today an oath is permissible. It is something that should take place, particularly in very important solemn occasions like a wedding, a marriage. I've done many, many weddings and it is absolutely appropriate as you have a man binding himself himself to a woman the two becoming one flesh that many times as they end their vows they say as god is my witness i give you my promise to say those words not to say that that all my other words don't come with a promise does that make sense but this is a very solemn occasion that is an important thing when two become one that's it We've just come off of talking about marriage, haven't we? So it's really interesting that Jesus is coming into this because what were they doing? They were doing wedding vows and then they were a few months later writing certificates of divorce. I guess my my words aren't much. And Jesus is coming back to say, listen, you also got to think about the words that you're saying. What kind of uh, people are you? Are you integrous? What is really the issue here? This is the issue. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Do not swear at all. This is why people think that he's saying we can't, you know, have any kind of such a thing. Because he did say, um, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. Which we just showed you, all through the Old Testament, this kind of oath-taking, swearing thing did take place. He came to fulfill. And in the Old Testament, you have men making oaths, God doing it, Jesus in the New Testament. So what's he mean? Look on to verse 34. For it is uh, so I, uh, verse I do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Also, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, you do notice those all those examples that Jesus gives. None of those is swearing by God. I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by heaven, I swear by the hairs on my head, but I won't swear by God. Why are all those things listed? This tells us what was going on during that time. Two things were wrong with the oaths and promises in Jesus' day, which came from this, again, perversion of the rabbinic uh, tradition and what they taught, and it fell far short of the Old Testament. First was a missing ingredient. All right The missing ingredient was a, a proper circumstance for the oath, like a solemn occasion, like a wedding they were literally giving these vows and oaths over everything, absolutely everything. Will you really go and stop and get the milk on the way home? I swear by the Jerusalem, I'm going to stop and get the milk. Stop bugging me, wife. It was over every little uh, thing. It wasn't reserved for, for special ceremonies or promises that required that, but it also had a misplaced emphasis, and the misplaced emphasis was limiting honest oaths only to those oaths that were made to the Lord. But if you were just to uh, excuse that to the Lord part and say maybe insert heaven, insert Jerusalem, insert the hair is on my head or my mother's grave, right? If you inserted any of those other things, perhaps then you didn't have to be as honest as you would have to be if you swore by the Lord. Remember, Leviticus 19.12, don't swear falsely by my name. So they had taken that to mean, oh, but I can swear falsely by any other name, you see this? This is what they've done with all of these these things. So they had conveniently interpreted this to mean they could swear by any other name. Now, I mentioned Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. I'll show it to you now. It says this, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So they had perverted that to mean that if you swore by anyone else, right, other than God, that's how you could Back out of your agreement, there it is, a vow uh, to the Lord. I'm no longer bound, right? But I'm only bound when I make a vow to the Lord. Now this was happening in Jesus' day, and the reason we know it is because this is something Jesus condemned the religious leaders for in, in Matthew 23. I just want to show you, just turn there real quick. Matthew 23 is all those woes, those woes to the scribes and Pharisees. whoa, whoa, whoa. In Matthew 23. He condemns them for this very thing. Look at verse uh, 16. Just turn ahead in your Bible there. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. You see that? They got into the place where, oh, you could swear by the temple. That wasn't a big deal. But oh, I up you. I swear by the gold of the temple. Oh, Oh, that was better. And Jesus is saying, what's better? Is the gold better? Or is the temple that sanctifies the gold better? You you don't even have this right. Forget your system. It's not even right. (laughs) Right? Verse 17, fools and blind for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. Verse 18, whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Same principle. Fools and blind for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And this is the idea. This is what he, that he's doing here. He who swears by, say, heaven. We have to remember who r- rules in heaven. That's his throne. And that's what Jesus says there, right? Going back to our passage. Don't swear by heaven. God rules in heaven. You're still swearing by something that he owns. Don't swear by Jerusalem. That's the city of the great king. Do you see this? So he's, he's really trying to correct this idea and bring it, bring it out. In verse 37, he says, instead, do this. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than this is from the evil one. This is very much a cultural thing that was happening in that day. They'd swear by just about everything else, and and they could just swear falsely. It didn't really matter. No one really knew who was telling the truth or who wasn't. And so he says, just let your yes be yes and your no, no. And that's God's standard, the standard of truthfulness, integrity. God's people should be integrous people. That's what he's talking about. The Bible has much to say about liars, doesn't it? You read Proverbs 6 and and God talks about the list he lists six things that he hates a seven especially and one of those a lying tongue. And and our daily speech should be filled with truth, with sincerity and not and not deceit. And that's Jesus's whole point here. In fact, James really takes Jesus's teaching and he emphasizes it in James chapter 5 verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no no, lest you fall into judgment. Begin. I mean, if you go into the judgment, it's going to be because you're lying. Your, your yes isn't yes. Your no is no. Where do liars end up? We read in Revelation, the lake of fire. It's not a. It's not an easy thing. You know, we kind of think, oh, I can tell a lie, a white lie. That's not to be for God's people. We're to be integrous people. And when it comes to vows today, yes, there are occasions for special vows. Absolutely, those should take place. But our everyday speech, we should be people of our word. If we say it, yes, it should be yes. No, it should be no. And that is the principle that he's bringing out here. If God's people would just be integrous, our world would look a lot different. As they were dismissing their wives, just right after they made oaths, right? Giving them gifts, giving them the certificates of divorce. Well, I'll divorce you and I'll make another oath for someone else, as long as they don't swear by God. So the swearing issue he has dealt with there. Let's look at this section of the eye for an eye. Very interesting section. Many of you probably heard uh, sermons on these parts about turning the other cheek and those kind of things. Perhaps you've had people come to you say, oh, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. Well, let's see what Jesus is really saying here. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And now, again, he's sort of bringing this out of some Old Testament passages in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. But The idea is this, is that the punishment should fit the crime. Tit for tat, quid pro quo. That is the idea here. The the law, actually the law in Exodus 21 had a longer list. Jesus just mentions a few of them here, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But it goes on to say hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's the picture. If you've been, been been wounded in this way, then the punishment for that should be the same for that person. A wound for a wound. Now, this is a this is the purpose for this whole law. It actually served two purposes. One was to diminish crime. If someone were to go go and commit a crime, and they were g- gonna you know hurt somebody in some way, they knew if they got caught and they would be punished the same way, it might deter them from doing it. So it was, a, it was a deterrent. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 20, it says this, those who remain shall hear in fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. That's right after that is given. So those who hear what is going to take place, what's their punishment for doing that, it should cause people to fear and think twice before they go do something to somebody. So it was to, to diminish crime. But the second thing was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal revenge. That's the thing. Uh, You you ever see, you know, just think about siblings. You know, one one sibling does something wrong to the other person. The other person doesn't want to just get them back. They want to get them back worse. You're right. I'll I'll do 10 times, you know, what they do. That's just in our nature. We want to do more than they uh, have done to us. A great illustration is you go back to the first murder. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, didn't we, with Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel. And after that, God punishes him. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't kill Cain. He doesn't take a life for a life. Instead, he sort of banishes him. He said, You're gonna be a vagabond, you're gonna be traveling in the world, and, and you're gonna be lost. And, and Cain is is he's just in despair. He said, This is a, a greater punishment than I can bear. And if if I go somewhere, everyone's gonna know who I am and what I've done, and you're, they're gonna kill me. And God says, Don't worry about that, I'm gonna protect you. And if anyone kills you, I'll I'll be vengeful on them sevenfold. Then you have Lamech come along, right? Lamech comes along, and this is you should just know this guy already, because his first part of his name is Lame. Lamech comes along and says, well, I killed a man for just wounding me, right? I killed a young man for just doing this. And if God's going to avenge Cain sevenfold, I'll avenge 70-fold. That's man's idea. I'll just get greater revenge. And that was was what what was taking place in this time. This was meant to prevent excessive punishment when it came to people wanting to take revenge. Now, over the time, the religious leaders— had moved all of what was taking place in this Old Testament law, which was really around civil government, how would you legally deal with some kind of crime, and moved it squarely into the personal sphere. This is what I'm gonna do. They made it an obligation, a mandate for vengeance. This is what they had done. Just like they made a a legal document to, to dismiss their wives, now they made a license for revenge. All you had to do was go say, hey, eye for eye, buddy. And everyone was out for their eye, and everyone was out for their tooth. Everyone wanted to get even. And so Jesus is addressing this perversion of the law here. Look what he says in verse 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, firstly, let me just clarify one thing at the very beginning. This does not mean that we're not to stand against evil. We are to stand against evil. Jesus and his disciples constantly stood against evil, Jesus, you know, chased out the money changers from the temple, didn't he? And Paul commanded the churches to put the evil person away from among you. Particularly in 1 Corinthians, we looked at, at that. And when evil ideologies and philosophies and those kind of things threaten the church, threaten our families, threaten our children, absolutely we're commanded to take up the war. And the Bible uses warfare. It uses that kind of terminology. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We fight these false and sinful and satanic ideologies with the truth. That's how we demolish arguments. That's how we bring down strongholds. The, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So we, we do stand against evil. Jesus is tell, not telling us to, to not resist evil. We must do that. What does Jesus mean here? Well, the word resist means to oppose or set your heart against. And he's talking about the personal resentment and spite and revenge that was taking place. You were wronged, and so you want justice and you want to go and get them back. That was the idea here. It was the desire to get even. This is what he's speaking about. This is where this law is operating. Now, if you take this basic biblical principle of of non retaliation, that's the the believer. We operate in this idea of we won't seek revenge, we don't retaliate. This comes from, uh, and this is the, the first point here Christians should not seek revenge and it comes from Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 17 and 19. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's the principle. We're not to repay evil for evil. We're not to seek revenge. In fact, we're to commit ourselves to him who judges justly. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And in Revelation, what we see is people who have been beheaded for the testimony of their faith, what are they crying out to God? They're crying out to God, God, when are you going to have vengeance? Listen, it is okay to desire that. It's okay to desire justice. God, I want justice. But it's not okay for me to take it, to take justice, because that is God's sphere. It's his realm, and it's it's not mine. Now, This is where this is going to get a little bit hard. So let's just really ask the Lord to really be with us today because understanding the principle of non-retaliation will mean one thing. It will mean that you are going to suffer wrong. Right? There's no way around that. You are going to suffer wrong. And we have to bear under that. That is what what he's teaching us. And when we follow what Jesus teaches here, he's going to cover three areas of basic human rights. Now, we all want our rights We all believe in human rights. We have these human rights charters and and things that have been written, right? But if we want to follow Christ and be obedient to him, we will lose some of our rights. It is just a truth. And this first one is dignity. Your dignity. No one wants to to lose their dignity, absolutely. But this is what Jesus addresses in verse 39. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now listen, God desires for everyone to be treated with dignity and respect. That is God's will, obviously. That's his, his, his desire. But he knows that for believers, that will not always be the case. It just, it just won't. Not if we want to follow him. We're going to be mistreated. Remember back in verse 10, blessed are those who are peacemakers or, and those who are uh, persecuted as well, right? For righteousness' sake. So it is the way that we react to mistreatment that he is talking about here and insult, all right? So what this doesn't mean, let me just clarify, doesn't mean that, that you can't resist a physical attack. It doesn't mean that you just, you can't defend yourself. There's a movie that came out a few years ago, Hacksaw Ridge, has to do with a Christian who goes into the military. He believes in Matthew 5 that God doesn't want us to kill people. That's how he defines murder, and so he won't take up a gun but he will go in there to be a medic. But as he's trying to stand for the gospel and stand for the truth of God's word, people love to twist this stuff. They say, aren't you supposed to turn the other cheek? They address this passage. And he stands toe-to-toe with this guy. The guy smacks him across the face. He goes, now give me the other one, give me the other one. And so he turns his face. Is that what God is asking you to do? Is that what Jesus is teaching here? Well, let me just tell you something. If someone broke into my house and they tried to hurt me and my family, I am taking them out you won't see them again. (laughs) That is not what God is teaching here. Let me show you in Exodus chapter 22, verse 2. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Back in the Old Testament, if a thief were to come in and he struck, well, who's striking him? Well, dad, duh. If that thief dies, the man is not guilty because he was defending his home, his family, okay? This is not what Jesus is talking about. He's also not saying that there's not a place for punishment or retribution in society. There is a place, and God has established that the the, the, the sphere that that happens in, the realm that that happens in, is within government. That's what he's, he's given the sword to the government to do justice. Now, I know we could talk all day long, does that really happen? But that's that's what he is intended with government. Romans 13, verse 4, for he is God's minister, speaking of the government. He's his minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So let me just bring, I, I just wanted to set those up. That's, those aren't the things he's talking about. Let's, let's see what Jesus is actually talking about. In his day, to strike someone on someone on the cheek with your fist was the greatest insult that you could give them. A, a slave would rather be beaten on the back with a whip than have his master strike him across the face with his fist. To spit in or smack someone with your, your hand was the greatest insult. It was to treat someone as less than human. Jesus got both, by the way, right? It was to completely destroy their dignity and say they weren't even worth anything. They're worthless people. So it was a massive, massive insult. And so what Jesus is trying to point out here is to show what we're, um, uh, to show us what we're not to do, right? Turn the other cheek. Take a non-retaliatory approach to this. If you're insulted in this way to your dignity, and that's what that would have been, then listen, you don't need to go and seek revenge for that. Don't be retaliatory. Leave that to him. Now, that's easier said than done, isn't it? What's, what's going to, someone comes and, and, you know, smacks you across the face. What's your first inclination? You know you're going to get angry. And listen, Paul got angry because this happened to him in Acts chapter 23. In Acts chapter 23, he is arrested. He's in Jerusalem, and he is uh, just opening his mouth to talk. And in verse, uh, verse 1, says, Then the priest looked earnestly at the council, and, said, and he said, Men, brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And then the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, to strike him on the mouth. So this Paul speaking, and he says, just go smack the guy in the face. So they hit him. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, but you command me to be struck contrary to the law. Why was it contrary to the law? Because back then, you, a, a person that was on trial could not be beaten, he could not be struck until he was guilty And once he was condemned, then they could beat him, and he had to take it. But Paul wasn't condemned yet. He was trying to defend himself, just to open his mouth, and they commanded him to strike him. Now, he got angry, didn't he? And he responded and called him a whitewashed wall. Look how he responds to this. Then then those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? (laughs) And if it were me, I would have said, yes, and I got more where that came from, you know. But this is what Paul said. I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I mean, if it were me, I I would be saying, well, you broke an Old Testament law, and I'm going to break one too. But Paul didn't do that. He said, you are right. I didn't know you were a ruler, and it is evil to speak evil of a ruler of the people. See, Paul caught himself, didn't he? He recognized, no, I've gone too far here. And I'm sure that after we look at this, we could all come up with many, many scenarios well, what about this situation? What about this situation? What about that? And um, I- I'm not going to get into that. In fact, I'll just go back to that old adage we used to ask. Just, just ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And here's why I'm not just trying to think of the bumper sticker, but it actually comes from Scripture. First Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. For what credit is it if you, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this, to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, Jesus is our greatest example there, isn't he? He didn't. He didn't fight back. He didn't. He didn't revile. He just entrusted himself to God. God, you will do justice in this situation, and I have to recognize that. And I can't be concerned about my dignity. I've told people many times, don't be concerned about your reputation. Just be concerned about Christ's. He'll take care of yours. So that's what we got to focus on. How do I make God look good in this situation? So turning the other cheek. Is, an, is to not retaliate to a personal insult or injury. But absolutely, don't, don't look for that and, 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 and don't um, just subject yourself to that. Protect yourself, run away, do what you need to do. But if that happens to you, you're not to seek revenge. So one of your human rights may be trampled on and it has to do with your dignity. Here's a second one. Oh, it gets better. <laughs> Verse 40, your property, your property if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic let him have your cloak also two things are mentioned here the tunic and the cloak the tunic was the shirt that was worn as an undergarment that you probably owned two of those and they would just change those out throughout the week but the cloak boy that was the outer garment and and you had one of those and boy was it valuable because that was your protection against the elements and you wore that as a blanket at night that was your cloak And the Mosaic law recognized how important that cloak was, and there was a requirement that if you borrowed that cloak, that you had to return it before the sun goes down in in Exodus 22, because that person needs it. So that's how valuable it was. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he brings these things up? He's not talking about robbery. He's not saying when someone comes and tries to, you know, rob you, then give them everything else, too. He's talking about a legitimate legal claim here. This this section is, is talking about a lawsuit. Someone wants to sue you and take your, 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 your tunic. Well, give them your cloak also. What's this about? Well, remember, going back to the beginning, kingdom-minded people, we've got to think differently and we've got to act differently. Our attitude should be one which is willing to surrender. It's just willing to surrender something that, that we may legally be bound to keep if it will make things right. See, legally, they didn't have to surrender the cloak. They could give the tunic had a legal right to keep that cloak. But he said, listen, but if that cloak, if that thing, if that will set things right between you and that person, give him the cloak. Give that to him as well. That should be our attitude. I have had to mediate arguments between church members uh, on a handful of occasions, and it is never a good thing. We had a family that uh, had an electrical fault, and their, their house caught on fire, and much of the inside of it was just, just burnt. And so uh, they asked for help we recommended a contractor that we had used before through the church, and when they had done the work, and all said was that they weren't happy with it, and they weren't happy with things that were done, and he used cheap labor, and this and that, and they they didn't work well together, so they came to us to kind of mediate this situation, and so to the one family, I was saying, well, you, you got a house back, right, the smoke's gone, you've got these things, I know, you know, this isn't to this, and this isn't, but you know, you've got this. And then to him, I was say, but, you know, you could have done better. You could have done your best, you know. But no one felt like we were saying, you know, something that would just go to their side. Because you can't take a side there. There's just no winning, is there? Oh, I can't take your side. I can't take your side. And here's what I was trying to take them to. It was 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8. We just went through this last year. Now, therefore, if it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another, why do you not rather accept wrong? So to the one, I was saying, could you just accept it? Maybe you did get cheated, but is, can you just accept it? And the other group, why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong, and you cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. We have personally endured uh, several times on several occasions uh, cheating done. And and in one occasion, I think I mentioned before, we had asbestos uh, housing around air conditioning venting and stuff up in the the attic removed professionally we thought Um, and then we put our house up for sale and on the final inspection day I had never gone up I just trusted the guy had done it uh, the inspector said I need to show you something took me up there and all of the venting was still hanging there with it just ripped apart so not only had the asbestos not been removed but now had actually been exposed and it, it closed the whole sale we never got to sell the house and now my heart inside, it was really burning. I'm like, that guy, I need to you know, kick him in the face. Um, we never sold the house, but looking back at it now, we were able to sell it at a whole different time in our lives. That was just a few years ago, which allowed us to buy the house here in Cardiff. Had we sold it back then, we would have bought another house in Lancaster and probably never moved. Um, and God used it. But I do look back and go, but if I had gone after that guy, if I had done something, I wouldn't look back at this story uh, the same way I do now. You know what I did? I just entrusted him. I said, God, you'll, you'll deal with him. If he was a cheat, and I found out he kind of did that thing with other people. he was a cheat, you'll deal with them." Um, and the Lord took his life two years later. He did die. And it was sudden. It was drastic. I never said a thing to the family. I went to the funeral. I loved on their family. They had a loss. That was a hard thing. But I, I personally knew that God was dealing with that man and that I entrusted myself to him. And that was our property, you know, Our property. And this is the idea. Listen, sometimes you're going to be cheated. He said, it might just be okay. Would you just do it? Doesn't everything belong to him anyway? It does. It does. And let's look at the last one here because I'm running out of time and I have way more to go. Ah, Verse 41, and this is the best one. You're going to love this one. Your liberty. Yeah, your liberty. Verse 41, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too compel is to press into public service that word is only used two other times in the new testament and both times of simon of cyrene he was compelled into public service to do what carry the cross of jesus so that's the word that jesus is using and in these days roman law gave a soldier the right to compel a civilian and that would have been a jew to carry his pack for a roman mile Now, can you imagine, in the mind of a Jew, these are your oppressors, these are the people you hate, you secretly loathe. Now, how low do you feel that you have to travel with this guy for a mile and carry his weapons of warfare? Carry his pack. That's pretty low. That burden was very much despised. One commentator said this about that the Jews fiercely resented such impositions, and Jesus' choice of this example deliberately disassociates him from militant, nationalists rather than resisting or even resenting the disciples should volunteer for a further mile remember what they think jesus was coming to do be this great military leader right come against rome he said actually if they ask you to carry the pack for a mile why not go too? they're forcing you into an act of love show them a greater love do too see jesus had his finger on the pulse of the jewish nation he knew the predominant attitude toward rome was resentment and listen, for us today, freedoms—they've long been protected. I have long enjoyed freedoms, but can I tell you, they've never been a guarantee. Never guaranteed that in a sinful and fallen world. I've I've been fortunate to live in countries that that I've I've had much freedom, and I've enjoyed that. And you know what? I am not a fan personally of losing some of my liberties that are coming down the the path. I, I I'm not enjoying that. I. I I'm not looking forward to those, those things personally. But what Jesus is trying to do here is to show us how we can overcome things that we maybe even perceive as evil with good. In Romans chapter 12, verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so I'm not confusing people. We've had a, a year of these kind of things happening. And maybe you've seen how the church has dealt with things, and, and, and some of this is confusing. Let me just tell you from, from where the leadership has come, the decisions we've made as a church corporately to continue to meet comes from this philosophy of understanding of, and what I believe Scripture to, to dictate, that the government has no, no grounds to dictate when and how worship should be done. They have no idea about any of that. And that's why when the churches stood against them, they didn't write on spiritual things. You couldn't quote scripture to a secular government. Well, but it says here. In, so what did they go to? They appealed to human rights. That's what they appealed to. And that's why the church won, and that's why we met. Praise the Lord. And so we took a stand there. But what about your personal lives? I leave that to you. How are you doing with that? Yeah, we're losing some liberties in some places. And what does Jesus say that we should do about it? I know people have come from different areas there, and I'm not trying to step on toes. What I am trying to do is be be true to his word. If we're talking about being shining lights out in that world, then what does that mean when you're going to that person's store or their home or the school or whatever it might be, your work? How do you react to the fact that some of your liberties are being stripped from you? Are you bad talking? Are you resentful? Are you angry? Are you fearful? If you are any of those things, you're being overcome with evil. You're not overcoming evil with good. That's all I'm going to say about that. The second point from all of this is in verse 42. Christians should also be charitable. Christians should be charitable. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. Two things are mentioned here. Be ready to give and be ready to lend. Both of those are there. And I don't think this means also that you respond to every selfish and foolish request that comes your way. It's sometimes better to, to not give something to somebody because they're asking it because you know it will do them a disservice. You, you come across that a lot of times in city center and things like that. When I'm approached for, for money and things like that, what I usually try to do is see what their need is. I've done that. I was in a meeting outside of Starbucks and someone came up and asked for money. I said, oh, I don't have any on me, but I, I'll take you in and get you something to eat. Oh, great. Came inside, looked at the menu. Oh, I don't like stuff here at Starbucks. Can you take me out to McDonald's? Nope. I'm eating a friend here. I'm talking with them. I'll get you something here. Oh no, never mind. So it wasn't their greatest need, right? Probably didn't want the money to feed an empty belly. So I think we have to use discretion as well, don't we? But our attitude should be one of willingness. I was willing to give that to them. I'm willing to do that. But we also want to use discretion. Psalm 112, verse 5 says, A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Discretion. So be wise. I know people, I, and loving people, wonderful people, said, no, I believe I'm supposed to give no matter what, and then and then God just deals that with that person. I, I don't have a problem with that. You want to do that? I just think we should apply some biblical principles in terms of wisdom as well, uh, because sometimes you're, you're doing a, a disservice. But he wants us to have a willing and generous and loving heart when it comes to giving and when it comes to... A lending, but now let's go into this last part because almost out of time. The loving your enemies—if you kind of look back to what Jesus has talked about and kind of connecting these things together about not resisting an evil person—maybe <laughs> that person will even come and ask you for money. Who knows, right? But you come into this now. I'm going to ask you even something even further. I'm going to ask you to love your enemies. This probably really stung. Love my enemies. Verse 43. You have not. Uh, sorry, you have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor," and hate your enemy. This comes from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the, 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 the rabbis here, the teachers had perverted this to uh, a great degree. They had omitted this little, little word, two words at the end of that, as yourself, when referring to people that they didn't consider their neighbor. First of all, the scribes and Pharisees pretty much had a hard time loving anybody as much as they love themselves. We, uh, we, we love ourselves really good, don't we? But to love your neighbor as yourself? Whew, i got to bring you up to that level. But these guys would look at at well, the, who really is my, my neighbor? They did not consider tax collectors and sinners their neighbor. They didn't consider uh, Gentiles their neighbors. They didn't consider the Samaritans their neighbors. And remember, a law, a lawyer came up to Jesus, right? And he said, how do I get eternal life? This is the whole topic here. How do you enter the kingdom of God? The lawyer says, how do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus asked him, well, what's the law say to you? Well, it says, I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh yeah. And my neighbor as myself. He added that, I think probably after a pause. And Jesus said, well, you've got it. There you go. But what'd the lawyer say? But can you help me out? Who is my neighbor? who is my neighbor i want i want to know who are the people i have to love and jesus told that famous parable didn't he of the good samaritan a priest comes by a wounded stripped naked man bleeding needing care and passes by a levite goes by neither one stopped to help the man the samaritan stops to help the man and many people really mess up that whole parable jesus isn't telling that to say this is how you do good works What he's showing is the hypocrisy of the entire structure. He took a priest and a Levite. He says, you guys don't even have any love in your heart. What you teach is false. You won't even stop and help this man. You consider him not to be your neighbor. But the Samaritan would go and love that man, and he he would be worthy of the kingdom. He would be worthy of the kingdom. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. So they would omit that as yourself. They would question who their neighbor was. But they also added something. They added hate your enemy. <laughs> that, that is not anywhere. They probably just took it from the Old Testament commands to go into the promised land of Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and all those ites. They probably said, oh, I'm supposed to hate them too. So they just made up this new command. I'm supposed to love and I'm supposed to hate. But throughout the Old Testament, the command was to love. It was to love and it was to do good to their enemies. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-one says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So what is Jesus going to say about this? In verse 44, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So Jesus has moved way beyond don't take revenge <laughs> toward that evil person, but to be loving be loving and he's defining for us who our neighbors are they would be also including our enemies people that would be considered our enemies and he says you need to to love them and the word that he uses for love is agape love it's not the love that has emotion it can but it's the love that must involve action it's it's the love of action you've got to love them you've got to show that you love them he says you've got to bless them which involves your speech Woo, that's hard but 1 Peter 3.9, Peter writes about that. He says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. We don't, we don't honor God when we revile people we consider enemies. Easy to do. He says, love them, bless them, do good to them. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites were commanded to help their, their fellow countrymen. Uh, A lot of times with the sheep and the animals, if they went astray and you found one, you were to take it and care for it until they returned and you would give it to them. And they were to uh, care for an injured animal and give it back to their neighbor. Well, those same commands of favors that they were due to to their fellow man, they're also commanded to do for their enemies. In, In Exodus 23, verses 4 to 5, he says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one, who hates you, lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So the good that we do for one another is good, but we should likewise do it for our enemies, he says. Now listen, what's the best way to do that? Well, he says, pray for them. That's the best way to have a right attitude. My heart will not always be in the place I want to bless my enemies, right? But he says, if you pray for them, what does it do when you pray for somebody? when you pray for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, of this command to pray for our enemies. He says it's the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. Listen, they are sinners in need of forgiveness, the same forgiveness you got. And guess what? They might become your brother and sister in Christ if you pray for them, wouldn't they? So we're to bless them, we're to do good to them, and we're to pray for them all those all those things now why should we do these things he just ends with these two reasons verse 45 to be more like our father we want to be like him verse 45 that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust speaks of God's common grace or his common providence he's he's the the God that owns the sun and the rain and he sends it on good people and wicked people the just and the unjust alike he doesn't differentiate uh, between them in terms of terms of that that what that's what makes god good and when we emulate our heavenly father in this way we further show god's goodness don't we so we to be more like our father but also to do more than our fellow man do christians should be outdoing our fellow man verse 46 and 47 for if those you, uh, sorry, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren uh, only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now he keeps mentioning the tax collectors because they were looked at as the, 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 you know, the traitors of the Jews. They, 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 they moved and, and worked for the Romans. So they were the most hated and despised. And he says those people, they do a good job of greeting one another so if all you do is greet one another in your own little clan what are you doing that's more than them not 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 much remember we were told to let our light shine before men that they may see your good works and what glorify your father in heaven that's what he said right we can live like this in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation it's possible in verse 48 he says therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect this is, this is the sum of Jesus' entire sermon here. This is it. It's, it's one of perfection. When you come to the end of this, there should be an overpowering sense of, I can't do this, and I have nothing in me to do this. It's spiritual bankruptcy. No one can be perfect. It's impossible. And Jesus will later say in Matthew 19, yeah, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And it's with God that we get a new heart. It's with God that we get the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do these things. But when you stand up here and talk about it like this, how could I possibly be willing to, to, to lose my dignity, my property, my liberty? What are you talking Are you mad? Could you imagine the audience even then thinking about these things when the Romans ruled and would just force them to do things like carry their packs around? Unthinkable. Listen, when I came in and, um, and took over the, the church back in 2018— I was asked if I had any kind of vision or plan, you know, for for the church, and I I, I remember saying I just growth is going to happen when our church gets really good at loving one another. I was focusing here, and I've seen amazing growth because you guys are really good <laughs> at loving one another. We don't even I don't have to call people and say hey make sure you're loving on people. You guys just do it organically. It's just happening because the holy spirit's moving in you and working in you and it's amazing to see i'm incredibly proud of this church do an amazing job testimony after testimony of people coming in saying just feel the love of christ i say amen but i will say the next step is that we want to be lights in the crooked and perverse generation we have to take that same love we got to take it outside these four walls and we got to love people that same way it's easy to love one another you guys are easy to love most of you, just one of you is not, but most of you are really easy to love. But it's a lot harder to love the people of the world, isn't it? But God would have us do that. So my challenge to us as a church today, as we finish this Matthew 5, and we look forward to what God would have us for us maybe this next year, that we would be really intent on being shining lights in this world. It's going to get harder. None of this stuff is going back. It's going to keep going, and it's only going to get harder to maintain my christian testimony i gotta watch sometimes my heart when i'm walking into the stores and i see those mask signs and whatever all those things i've got to go none of that matters what matters right now is that i am a shining light that i have a vibrant testimony you have to crucify yourself you just have to do it and it's going to take some work but we can do it can't we yeah. we can be a bright shining church i know we are we have it here. God is working in our midst, and I'm so excited to see what he's doing, and I can't wait to see what he will continue to do. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the challenge that it brings. It, um, you told us that to follow you, we would need to take up our cross daily. Not just once, but daily. It is a daily dying to self to follow you. It is a daily dying to my heart attitude about the things that I see in this world my attitude maybe against uh, the people that I harbor things against or uh, things that I uh, have happened in the past or whatever it might be. It's a daily dying to those things that my heart and my mind might be in line with you. Lord, you've called us to be sons of our Father in heaven, to shine like bright lights in this perverse and dark and crooked generation. And Lord, it's only possible through the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you transform your church? Would you transform your people? You have a loving, vibrant, wonderful flock that you have placed here in Cardiff. What a blessing it is and a privilege to lead these beautiful people. And I'm just so excited, Lord, to see how you will continue to grow your church and take this light into the darkness that surrounds us, Lord. Light overcomes the dark. Help us to overcome evil with good. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.